I spoke this morning about the different key aspects of this practice and the way in which we're training ourselves in those key aspects. And to remind you, I spoke about that of focusing on our direct experience rather than all the ways we get carried away, inquiring into our direct experience, and the sense of taking a fresh look at what's happening, and caring for our direct experience, rather than measuring, judging, and blaming And as we settle into this practice, either settling in over these days or settling in over the years that many of you have been practicing, the deepening of our understanding of our own lives, our deepening understanding of life itself, we see real change and transformation in those three aspects. As I was saying earlier, every time we unhook from our latest melodrama and just come back to this, we're really strengthening our capacity to be with what's happening. And that that with repeated noticing we go off, coming back, noticing we go off, coming back, then we really start to notice our capacity develop to abide where we are. Similarly with inquiry, usually the only kind of inquiry we're we're used to or understand how to do is a kind of intellectual or cognitive inquiry, wondering about things, ruminating on things. And yet, as we practice, we learn to, what I was calling this morning, kinesthetically inquire, to embody our experience and explore it with presence with the capacity to witness directly, intimately what's happening in ways that are unimaginable before we have that experience. We start to recognize our capacity to actually explore with attention in a way that can be deeply, profoundly revealing. We learn how to ask questions of our experience without expecting answers rather questioning so deeply that the questions can resolve themselves in what's revealed, seeing into life more clearly and deeply than we could have imagined. That's what the word vipassana means. Vipassana means to see into clearly. So we start to notice this this deepening of our capacity. But the third aspect, that of really caring for what's happening, is, I think, really the one that needs the most attention. It's the one we get into most difficulty with. Sometimes I think that maybe 80% of all the work I do in this kind of context with people in Dharma practice, is about learning how to care for what's happening. Learning how to care for our own hearts. Learning how to care for ourselves. I I could call this talk a talk about taking care of yourself. And there's some strange, um, there can be some strange views around that in the kind of Buddhist world with the sort of, um, with the, the, the various views, not teachings, but the views around no self, that self is this kind of thing we're trying to get rid of and ought to deny and sometimes the rather desperate kind of hope of ignore it and it might go away. That's a pretty poor way to treat oneself. Ignore it and it might go away. 
I'll just uh, look for breathing or footsteps or um, something instead, or I'll practice some nice spiritual feelings. And hopefully this troublesome thing called the, the self might vanish, disappear, get transcended. Ow. No, that's, that's uh, you know, poor old me if I'm busy trying to ignore myself, push myself out of the way. So maybe Buddhists, more than anyone else, need teachings on how to take care of oneself. What we notice is that going along with our experience, rather than that sense I was talking about this morning of a gentle, allowing, receptive care, we tend to notice measurement, judgment, blame, comparison, and a sense then of uh, not good enough. And that can go in all kinds of different ways. But it's, if, we, if we look, it often characterizes a frightening amount of our experience. Going along right beside almost anything can be the measurement of it. They're trying to weigh it up, comparing it, comparing ourselves to others, comparing this moment to a previous moment, better than, worse than. A lot of internal pressure that goes with that. But we've been brought up to blame. You know, as soon as anything goes wrong, very quickly we want to know whose fault is it. And so we, we see that played out in our families and in education and in, in our, in our in uh, society in general. Whose fault is it? Who did that? You know? And then the apportioning of blame and guilt. I remember at, at uh, primary school, that seemed to be the mantra of one of my teachers. Who did that? <gasps> and everyone would freeze. It was terrifying, even if I had nothing to do with it. It was terrifying. She, she seemed to loom three sizes bigger. And she said that. Who did that? And so we get used to apportioning blame. We see that in, in, the, in the outer world. And you know, it's important in some sense that there has to be some... Uh, you know, we need protecting from violence and... Uh, you know, Things that threaten us, threaten our safety, threaten our well-being, etc. And so there's a whole kind of criminal justice system to support that, and appropriately so, right, in many ways. <clears throat> Except we take the sense of blame and fault very far. And we see that in the outer circumstances, where with a kind of um, marginalisation or exclusion of the humanity, often, of criminals, for example. So, of course, there's the unacceptable act. But then there's a kind of stigmatization of the person that often goes along with that. And we see the same things in our inner life as we kind of marginalize aspects of ourself as being unacceptable. So this strong tendency to blame... And we have to look to our own experience. Probably we'll find that our tendency goes in all three of the areas I'm going to describe. But we might find that we have stronger tendencies in one direction or another. <clears throat> Blame tends to go to others. Your fault. I'm not pointing at anyone in particular when I say that. A kind of God's fault. Or life's fault. I just kind of find feeling, you know, life's got it in for me in some way. 
or inwardly my fault. All, each of which are problematic in different ways. I remember I, when I was living in India, I, um, there was a woman living nearby to me who, who made a real art form out of blaming others. She just seemed to uh, get into fights all the time with everybody, with uh, rickshaw drivers and uh, hotel guides and uh, street beggars and other tourists and uh, restaurant uh, owners and the bill was always wrong and everyone was trying to rip her off. Extraordinary how, that, uh, how much she could cultivate a sense that it's, his fault and her fault and their fault and look at them all. And that sense then of starting to view people with suspicion. Already before any interaction, the sense that they're not trustworthy, they've got it in for me, they're going to rip me off. And there are almost inevitably conflict born out of that suspicion. And then how, how quickly we start to shut people out of our hearts. Unacceptable. And the pain we experience in that gap, in that distance, feeling apart from, that whole mentality of them and us, they're to blame. And the way that plays itself out on the personal level with, uh, with personal conflicts, even to the way it plays itself out kind of on the world stage in war and politics. Them and us. They're wrong. We're right. And it seems so crystal clear. It's interesting in any conflict, personal or political, that both sides are equally convinced that they're right. Now what does that say about our sense? It says much more about the, the way blame works than it does about rightness or wrongness. So it's important to recognize the painful consequences of blaming when it goes other outwards and to ask ourselves what would it mean to care in this situation maybe that some behaviour is unacceptable but there's no such thing as unacceptable people even though there may be many unacceptable behaviours we experience the pain of putting others out of our heart. Sometimes our blame just goes to life. In, in England we have this lovely mantra. It's a typical. You know that? It's always fascinated me. Mostly because my mother used to use it so much. You know, something goes a bit wrong. Oh, typical. As if that just confirms what I knew about life all, the way, all along. That it's got it in for me. It's an extraordinary kind of arrogant uh, position, really. As if life's got nothing better to do than organise itself to screw things up for me. And yet, and we see the we we see the humour of it because we see the absurdity. And yet, how easily, when something goes a bit wrong, we take it really personally, and then we get angry at life, at God, at circumstance, and blaming circumstance, the pushing against that somehow. And of course the extreme version of that, which we each may suffer from in, in different ways, maybe not to the extreme version, but nevertheless, is paranoia. Convinced that somehow life is conspiring against us. 
I recently saw a bumper sticker on a, on a car that was trying to counteract this tendency. And it said on the bumper sticker that the person driving was a sufferer of pronoia. That strange feeling that the universe is conspiring to help you. <laughs> What's interesting though is, is in each of it, it's, it's all about me. Whether life's conspiring against me or towards me, it's all about me. Actually, life is open and free. Free of um, making too much about this, about me. What seems really to be true is that more that are, are we ourselves open and free up our contractions, the more we align ourselves with the openness and freedom of life, the more sense of alignment and smooth passage and ease of flow through life there is. So could we abide with difficult circumstances without blaming them? On the first, in the first teaching the Buddha ever gave, the, the first part of the first teaching the Buddha ever gave was to point out that it's really normal that things go wrong in life. That's basically what he said. In life, there's things go wrong. And somehow, through mistranslation and misunderstanding, that got horribly um, corrupted into life is suffering. But what he actually said is, in life, there is suffering, there is difficulty, there is things that are hard to bear, there is the unwelcome and the unwanted. In everybody's life, things happen that we would rather not happen. And what do we do with that? Do we recognize the truth of it? And, and see, how am I relating to this difficult circumstance? How, am I able to meet it freely? What kind of reactivity do I have? Do we use it as an opportunity to investigate, an opportunity to open and free our contractions? Or do we use it as further evidence to blame life? We seem to think when something goes wrong that we have to blame someone, that it must be someone's fault, that it must be your fault or my fault or life's fault. But maybe it's just life's life being open and free. Maybe it's normal. The most difficult bit, the most hard to bear bit about unpleasant circumstances is the thinking that there's something wrong with it, that it shouldn't be like that, that someone's to blame. And all the constructions, the add-ons, the fussing that we do with that. And then there's the way we turn blame inwardly. My fault. And in the same way that when blame's turned outwardly, we shut others out of our heart or shut, uh, shut, uh, shut life off, shut ourselves off from life. When we turn blame inwardly, we shut off whole aspects of ourselves as being not okay, not acceptable. Not okay to show to others. Not okay to experience. Whole bits of ourselves that become somehow shameful, wrong. Bits we feel guilty about. And that tendency can even get exacerbated by this kind of work, by any kind of spiritual work. Because we can easily try to to con conform to some kind of spiritual ideal. And within any tradition, spiritual ideal is usually kind of, you know, shiny, beatific, peaceful, wise, compassionate, spacious. It's like, oh, 
And the more I say, the more qualities I real, the more inadequate I feel, the more I feel it's impossible to measure up. And so what do we do with all those bits that don't feel spacious, peaceful, compassionate, wise? And they can, if we're not careful, they can become our guilty secrets. You know, sometimes there's, there's a lot of that around in spiritual circles sometimes. There's the kind of whiff of suppressed uh, stuff while people are busy being so nice to each other. On top. I can't really speak for other spiritual traditions because I've kind of grown up much more in Buddhist circles than others. But Buddhists seem to be particularly bad at it. You know, at being so nicey, nicey, nice. So sweet and peaceful. And, uh, and that can feel very supportive, right? But it's really a problem if there's no room for the other bits for the darker bits, for the painful places. If there's too much emphasis on the wisdom and compassion and not enough um, naming of, normalizing of, allowing of the, the other territory, then where does it go? It, can, it just gets squashed and then of course it comes out in other strange ways unconscious ways, destructive ways. I've spoken on the first evening about how there's no unacceptable feelings here, no unacceptable experiences here, that everything's welcome. I could say that every time we sit down here. But it's very strongly conditioned in us that, some, that our experience is not okay as it is. That it ought to be different. And then as I said, we can use our, whole, our practice to try and force it into a particular look. A peaceful look. A wise look. A spiritual look. And give a lot of attention to looking mindful rather than being mindful. I know I've spent a lot of, uh, a lot of energy in retreats trying to work out how to walk, do walking meditation so that I'm looking really mindful. Especially when I see the teacher come around the corner. You know, then it's like, oh, make sure I look mindful. <laughs> So how can we really take care of ourselves with that tendency to blame, judge, measure and dismiss parts of ourselves? And I, I know that um, because I've heard it here from you, because I've heard it many, many times from people, because I've recognized it very much in my own practice, the tendency to, um, to complain, to judge, to moan to myself about how useless I am, how poorly I'm doing, how inadequate my practice is. And that's a really uh, painful process. When we look around and we compare ourselves to others, we've no idea what's going on with others. But they look so mindful, they look so peaceful, they look so still. And then we compare oh, to what we find here. And then we, we get out that internal stick to beat ourselves with. The stick of not feeling good enough. Whatever hand we put it on, not mindful enough, not concentrated enough. Not the right kind of thoughts, not the right kind of feelings, not good enough experiences. Whatever it might be. And we can equally, of course, go to the other extreme of uh, puffing ourselves up. 
which is actually just as painful. It feels a bit better in the moment, but there's an extraordinary amount of pressure to maintain that. Trying to persuade ourselves, oh, I'm doing okay. Oh, she moved next to me. I didn't move. I'm doing okay. I'm really getting the hang of this. But there's a kind of desperation to that. You know, it's like those affirmation type things we can get that tell, I am a peaceful and together person. I am a peaceful and together. I am a peaceful and together person. It takes a lot of energy to keep trying to convince ourselves of that. So whether there's a kind of inflationary tendency of puffing ourselves up in some moments, or a deflationary tendency of putting ourselves down in others, that's really not taking care of ourselves. That's putting a lot of pressure on ourselves, pressure that we don't need. So how to take care of that tendency? How to meet that tendency in a way that's really helpful? Firstly, of course, in mentioning it, is that it's important to recognize that's what's happening. Oh, this is me giving myself a hard time. This is me blaming myself. This is judgment. Ah, Belittling. Pressurizing. Sometimes we need to really stand up to that tendency. And if you were to come around the corner here and find somebody, you know, with some who had somebody else up against the wall saying, You're not very mindful. You're not very concentrated. You don't sit very still. You know, what would you do? I know what I'd do. I, you know, I'd grab the person. Hey, that's not okay. Back off. Leave them alone. Sometimes that's the way we need to meet that tendency. We need to really stand up to it. Back off. You know, we don't hear voices being raised very much in here. But sometimes that's what's needed. Oh, you're so this. Oh, you're so that. What's the matter with you? Why can't you concentrate? Back off! You feel that? There's some power to it, isn't there? Back off! You don't have to use the word back. You can use much stronger language. Give me some space. Get out my. Get off my case. It's really, it's really needed, that kind of boom, that kind of strong, forceful, no way. I'm not putting up with that. That's not okay. In the Tibetan tradition, you know they have these wrathful deities. Divine beings, but with great kind of flaming eyes and tusks coming out of their nose. and going, Like we do after lunch, you know, going... Well, that's what that's what those uh, wrathful deities are embodying. A kind of fierce care. It's very much an expression of care. It's taking care of that bit of us that's getting um, getting belittled, getting shot down, getting squashed by our inner critical structure, the structure of blaming and criticizing that we've built up in some ways as a protection. You know, in some ways as an attempt. <clears throat> to look after ourselves. Come on, you know, put yourself together. Come on, do it like this. Come on, do it like that. The structure that we've interjected from various different authority figures in our life. You may, you may notice in that voice of blame, criticism, judgment, you may notice the voice of one or other parents. Or teacher or some other early authority figure or you might experience it more as a kind of amalgam of different authority figures that one's interjected you might note it might feel more like a part of you or it might feel more like a voice that's kind of coming from outside somewhere but we always experience it as having authority whether it seems like an external authority or an internal authority
That's how it survives within us, as, as basically suggesting, listen to me. I know what's what. You're so. Da, da, da. But when we start to recognise the, the effect of that on our soul, the effect of that on our heart, on our consciousness, then we start to wake up to the fact, hey, this is not okay. So if you find yourself kind of in this storm of self-doubt and criticism, you might want to try just really um, rising up against that. Back off. You might be surprised by how empowering it can be. I don't expect you to say it out loud in the hall. But you can certainly kind of embody the energy of that. The wrathful, fierce care. The fierce protective care that you're giving to this kind of fragile plant of your practice. By giving it some space. As an act of care. As a way of caring for yourself. Giving yourself some space to allow what's there. To be given a chance. Sometimes it can help to just um, even exaggerate that tendency to blame and criticize. Okay, have it say. And so that it, as a way of seeing through its authority. Because we're often in this kind of conflicted relationship. Oh, please be quiet. Please leave me alone. No, you're so... You know, and we get into a kind of a dialogue someone was describing today. A kind of inner debate with it. You know. Your meditation's so bad. Oh, no, it's not. Please leave me. give me a chance to... Do it. No, but, uh, you know. So maybe it can be useful to just get out of the way and let it rant. Let it rant. And we start to see the absurdity of it. We start to see the comedy even of it. As it kind of gets more uh, preposterous, bluster, blusterful. Is that a word? Blustery. You know? it will, it'll soon run out of steam if we don't react to it. Just like if somebody's really uh, kind of, you know, ranting, someone in, in, you know, that we might be uh, engaged with, talking with, if someone's really ranting, if you don't put fuel on the fire, please say some more. Then it kind of runs out of of steam. It feeds on, actually, the fact that we're, we're kind of simultaneously shrinking from it, which gives it power, and pushing against it, which gives it power. So again, as an act of care for ourselves, when we recognise there's that structure, to see if we can get out of the way, please say all you like. And sometimes, as an act of care, is just to see we just see how painful that structure is. How painful it is to have part of us so locked up in criticism and blame and judgment and negativity and fault-finding. And we, we, sometimes we re- in really feeling the pain of that. Naturally, we can't help but feel compassionate towards it. Wow. You poor old structure. You poor old inner tyrant. Spending your whole day freaking out about me. Well, you know, what a sad little life. To have nothing better to do than moan about me all day. You poor old soul. I know. And in that way, somehow we could say loving the structure to death. Again, it's a way of not putting fuel on the fire. By actually, you know, and we can't kind of force that 
but sometimes we actually see the how how uh, uncomfortable that part of ourselves is having to do its job of always you know trying to kind of um keep us on the straight and narrow that's the belief we have you know i mean that it's here to look after us but that kind of relentless you know we're never good enough for it the buddha had just this same problem which may reassure us Some of you will have heard me speak about this this kind of material before, and certainly the Buddha's relationship with Mara. But I make no excuse for repeating it, however many times you may have heard me speak about it. Because this, is, this relationship is so key to us, so core. It's, this structure accompanies us so far. The, the structure of measuring in different ways. So as I say, in the Buddha's life, even after awakening, his whole tales of the way he would feel disturbed by self-doubt and criticism before his awakening, but even after. And in the Eastern tradition, you know, there's that personification. So in the same way as wrathful deities are personified, that structure of inner criticism is personified in the Buddhist tradition as Mara. Marna from the Sanskrit means to beat or to kill So Mara is the beta, which may be pretty similar to the way we experience our own critical structure. And Mara would keep coming along and making these kind of whispering, these doubtful thoughts in the Buddha's ear. Who do you think you are? This is before awakening. The night before the Buddha's awakening, Mara appears. Who do you think you are to think you could get enlightened, to think you could understand the great matter of life and death? What gives you the right to sit here? You know, when I read that, I was stopped in my tracks at how familiar it was from the way Mara would go on at me. What gives you the right? Who do you think you are? Last, last two summers ago, I think it was, Bhante Gunaratna, some of you know, he taught here uh, two years ago as well. He was at our centre in France, where I lived to teach a retreat. And uh, Stephen Batchelor, another teacher who lives nearby, came over to visit Bunte and gave him a copy of a book he'd just written. The book was called Living with the Devil. And is a kind of contemporising of, uh, of Mara in the Buddhist tradition and using slightly more psychological language as we would in our culture. So Stephen gave the book to Bhante and said, you know, it's a book all about Mara. And for those of you who don't know Bhante Gunaratna, he's 88, I think, now. He's been a monk since he was 12. So 66 years, monk. And he's a very wonderful, kind of beaming monkish presence. Kind of very shiny-skinned and a very sweet, saintly, wonderful man. Lovely, a great Dharma teacher as well. So Stephen offered him the book saying it was about Mara. And he said, oh, thank you. I could do with that. <laughs> Mara gives me a lot of trouble. So when Mara would come along and hijack the Buddha, whispering doubtful messages, basically what would happen, the Buddha would say, Ah, I see you, Mara. I see you. And Mara would go, (laughs) Because he'd come in various disguises, you know. Disguised as if, look, this is a good idea. I'm looking out for your well-being here. Why don't you, uh, you know, da, da, da. either towards self-aggrandizement or towards self-diminishment, coming in different disguises, just like our own critical structure comes in different disguises. You know, like sometimes very subtle ones it might be. Oh, you're doing really well at this meditation thing. You know. But if you could just really um, concentrate on this, then then you'd really get somewhere better. If you could just tweak your experience a little bit differently. I see you, Mara. 
when we really see that critical structure for what it is, it goes, oh, shucks. And then all these in the, in the texts of the Buddha's encounters with Mara, it says, and Buddha dropped his shoulders and slunk away. Uh-huh. Slunk away. It's a rather lovely image. And that's, it's, it's a very accurate image, uh, it seems, of what happens when we don't keep putting fuel on the fire, when we have the, the when we recognize, oh, this is that critical structure. And rather than doing battle with it, rather than shrinking from it, we take care of ourselves. Say, so, oh, here you are. Here you are. And it doesn't have anything else to push against. So taking care of ourselves by really meeting that capacity we have to undermine, criticize and sabotage ourselves and what we're experiencing. Sometimes we need to take care of ourselves in different ways. Sometimes what's happening, sometimes our experience is just too tender, too painful, too overwhelming. Maybe Things that we've uh, been are kind of aware of in the background of our lives, and somehow being in the kind of stark environment of a retreat, no escape, no fridge, no TV, none of our usual shrines that we worship at, and so we're kind of we in the starkness of this rather naked uh, facing of our lives. Things just sometimes just feel too much. I can't, and and it feels impossible to apply all our meditative kind of techniques. And we hear that guy up the front that keeps going on about giving space to it, and uh, just allowing it, and softening around it, and it just doesn't seem possible. And sometimes it's important to respect that. Sometimes to take care of ourselves means to skip a sitting. And go and sit by the fish pond. You know? To lie on the grass. To listen to the birds. To smell the flowers. It's not a running away. It's not a fleeing from our experience. It's a recognition. Right now this is too much. Right now I can't, I haven't got like a spacious perspective. Right now I can't actually hang in here with it. And so it actually can be wisdom to take oneself away and just to give yourself a space to be in touch with something else. Something that gives a sense of nourishment, of peace, of joy, of beauty, of appreciation. Oh, it's not just all about me and my stuff. There are birds and flowers and trees and space and sunshine. taking care of ourselves in such a way that actually lets our heart relax a bit open to something else other than the difficulties we may be facing and sometimes no, these are these are just a few examples. Care, the 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 fact of caring for what's happening can take on so many different expressions. The Buddha talked about care as one of the limitless qualities of the heart. So what I'm I'm calling care in, in the Pali is uh, the Buddha called metta, which some of you are familiar with as maybe as the more usual translation of loving kindness. But I, I don't think that's a, a complete 
translation somehow of metta. So I think some other words, care, goodwill, sense of well-wishing towards others, towards oneself, towards what's happening. And the Buddha spoke about abiding with a heart suffused with care. Uh, abiding with a heart that radiates care in all directions. And there's certain practices in the Buddhist tradition that are designed to um, sort of cultivate that kind of attitude. A caring attitude towards others, a caring attitude towards oneself. And sometimes consciously turning one's attention towards caring, well-wishing. Might be somebody who we have difficulty with. Consciously wishing them well. Not to deny the difficulty that may be there, but recognizing that they, they're also struggling in some ways. Their own difficulties and limitations. Sometimes to really wish ourselves well. Recognizing that it's kind of noble work we're doing here. Many people might recognize that there's some value to meditation. You know, we meet people to say, oh, you meditate, that's a very good thing, yes, meditation, yes. I'd love to go on a retreat one day. They say, well. Oh, yes, well, uh, at the moment, uh, you know. Some people would love to go on a retreat one day for many years. (laughs) But there seems to be many, many reasons why they don't actually quite manage. And to actually put oneself in an environment like this, there's an extraordinary amount of goodness in it. And the goodness that each of you are manifesting by being here, by staying here, by meeting yourselves. Sometimes it's an act of care to really let that in. Appreciating yourself for the work you're doing. Wishing yourself well. Our capacity for care is limitless. As I said, the Buddha called it one of the boundless qualities of heart. Boundless. No limit. A care that might start out in any direction, inward, outward, here or there, and yet somehow, as as our as our capacity for care, as our wish for care, as we see the potency of care, and all the examples I've given this evening, the way different acts of caring for ourselves dissolve difficulty, stand up to difficulty. remedy difficulty as we start to see that then our, naturally our orientation is more caring and our capacity is more caring our sense of care opens up until there would not even the sense of me caring for or me being cared for there's just a sense of abiding in a field of care a field of love a field of goodwill, of beneficence, benevolence. I was mentioning last night before bedtime about as you're resting into the mattress, feeling the way the bed is holding up your body as a mirroring for the way in which life supports our being. That's really how the life's field of care works. Look how much life cares for us. That it supports our life. That it animates our body and heart and mind. This, this, all of this is an expression of how much life cares for itself. That it allows being to happen. The degree to which we can realize that is limitless.
the degree to which our heart can open has no bounds. To care for ourselves or to care for others or to feel cared for by others or by life itself all dissolve in that field of care. As I say that, I'm reminded of a poem of Rumi's, a famous poem, you may know the lines. Out there, there is a field beyond right and wrong. I'll meet you there. Beyond our judgments and blame, beyond the bits that we cut off from ourselves, cut off from others, cut off from life. If we can stay with what's happening with care, we can find all of that included in life's limitless, caring embrace. And this is what our work here is for. May it serve each one of us deeply and by extension serve all those we have contact with. May we know a life of care, caring, cared for, where nothing's cut off, nothing's excluded, nothing need be denied, nothing's unacceptable. A life that has room for however we are. Life that has room for us, like this, right now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.